Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from The New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Kwame Dawes, the author of over 20 books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. His many honors include a 2019 Wyndham Campbell Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Barnes & Noble Writers for Writers Award, and the Ford Prize for Poetry. Welcome, Kwame. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here, Kevin. It's great to see you. Yeah. So the poem you've selected from the archive is The Season of Phantasmal Peace by Derek Walcott. Can you tell us a little bit about why you picked the poem? It's a very familiar poem. I think it's on many Caribbean course syllabi. Um, and it struck me that it's a very New York poem uh, or very city poem for a Caribbean writer. Here's Kwame Dawes reading The Season of Phantasmal Peace by Derek Walcott. The Season of Phantasmal Peace. Then all the nations of birds lifted together the huge net of the shadows of the earth in multitudinous dialects, twittering tongues, stitching and crossing it. They lifted up the shadows of long pines down the trackless slopes, the shadows of glass-faced towers down evening streets, the shadow of a frail plant on a city sill, the net rising soundless as night, the birds' cries soundless until there was no longer dusk or season, decline, or weather, only this passage of phantasmal light that not the narrowest shadow dared to sever. And men could not see, looking up, what the wild geese drew, what the ospreys trailed behind them in silvery ropes that flashed in the icy sunlight. They could not hear battalions of starlings waging peaceful cries, bearing the net higher, covering this world like the vines of an orchard, or a mother drawing the trembling gauze over the trembling eyes of a child fluttering to sleep. It was the light that you will see at evening on the side of a hill in yellow October, and no one hearing knew what change had brought into the raven's cawing the killdeer screech, the ember-circling chuff, such an immense, soundless and high concern for the fields and cities where the birds belong. Except it was their seasonal passing, love, made seasonless, or 
from the high privilege of their birth something brighter than pity for the wingless ones below them, who shared dark holes in windows and in houses, and higher they lifted the net with soundless voices, above all change, betrayals of falling suns, and this season lasted one moment, like the pause between dusk and darkness, between fury and peace. But for such as our earth is now, it lasted long. That was The Season of Phantasmal Peace by Derek Walcott, originally published in the October 27, 1980 issue of the magazine. I was struck uh, because I have the New Yorker's version of some small changes he made, uh, which is really interesting because he says in this version, in quiet October, and you read in yellow, yellow October. October. What, an, what a different right. uh, a yeah, yeah, yeah. And it locates it, doesn't it? Because, you know, I was reading the poem again and again, and um, I'll tell you a little joke. One of the struggles that I think the Caribbean students have with it is they're thinking Caribbean, right? And, <laughs> and some things don't make sense. And Yellow October makes absolutely <laughs> no, no sense to them. And so these students are wrestling with, and, you know, they, they, they're reflecting towers and all that kind of stuff. So, so right. it's, it's, quite, it's quite striking, but it, it clearly is a poem that, that Walcott is sort of engaged with all the birds and so right. on. All those references are very much North America. And um, it's an, it, I thought that was one of the things that struck me as interesting. But that's an interesting change. I, I actually not noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting, I was struck by the multitudinous dialects, twittering tongues, stitching and crossing it. You know, that to me is almost the cosmopolitan city quality that he's trying to evoke. Um, he's listening to this multitude, and I think of that with Walcott a lot. So he's doing a lot of weird things in this poem where there are these contradictions. So so the, the multitudinous, first of all, he's he's evoking Babel or, you know, the Tower of Babel, those voices. But but there's a lot of silence in the poem. The poem mm-hmm. is actually the absence of noise. Yeah. That the birds are not making a noise, that that the people in distance are not making a sound, and yet they represent noise. Mm. So there's that that evocation. And there's another weird kind of, um, I think it's an illusion that I think is fair. I don't know if you know this image in the in the New Testament where, where Peter, I think, um, gets a dream. And in the dream, there's this cloth on the ground, and there's all kinds of foods and, and birds and all kinds of creatures that are not kosher. And then God says, and it's on this sheet that lifts up, and he sees this sheet, and then God says to him, it's all fine. Hmm. It's, it's this, this, this sort of very sort of New Testament <laughs> Christian moment. Yeah, um, that's not the one I remember. No fire and brimstone? Okay, okay. But I think Walcott is evoking that. There's some mm. sort of lines that seem to suggest that. But it's the idea that, there's love at the heart of it, that mm-hmm. the openness to love, the openness to difference, yeah. the openness to that whole range of things. But as humans, we are the ones huddled in the little windows. Mm. We're the little distant creatures that he refers to there. It's one time that I sort of feel comfortable saying universal about this this statement, this, mm. this wonderful poem where the place is clear, but yet it's also this larger statement. What do you take phantasmal peace to be? It's an illusion. I think they're signature Walcott things, like, you know, between dusk and night, 
that twilight. That's mm-hmm. that's Walcott's moment. And yes. in that moment, Absolutely. in that singular moment, there's this illusion of peace and love. Huh. So it's a pretty depressing <laughs> if you think Thanks about it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. But when he I, says, I, I want to zero in on what you say, because yeah. it says, such an immense, soundless, and high concern for the fields and cities where the birds belong. What lovely rhythm. Except it was their seasonal passing, love made seasonless. Right. And I think that's the one hope. Seasonless means that it, I, th- I think it's not constrained by the seasons, mm. that it is something, it's, it's almost the same as saying timeless, but mm-hmm. he couldn't get away with that. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? no, no, right. So, so I, think, I think he's saying love as, as this, this timeless moment. And, and there is hope in that last instance where he says, but in this moment, which seems short, but it is grand, there's this ecumenical sense that love as this f- seeming fleeting thing, yet it multiplies itself uh, mm-hmm. in that sense. So, so even though I, I describe it as sort of pessimistic or depressing, it's not, it's not that. It's, <laughs> it's that you can't get love, you can't get hope. It's not permanent. Of, it's not permanent, yeah. And, but it's a moment, and we should grab that moment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what's interesting, he says, and this season lasted, as you said, one moment, like the pause between dusk and darkness, yeah. between fury and peace. I mean, you know, I don't think of the opposite of peace as fury, but right. here it is. Here, yeah. here he's made us know that. But for such as our earth is now, it lasted long. What's he saying about that earth and that now, which I think feels super urgent, now, even? Yeah. And this is the thing which we're getting at, which is that fury and peace, and, and there's other language that is almost straight out of the newspaper, the, the language of, um, of, of, of diplomats, of politicians, of wars and rumors of wars and so on. And he's saying that there is a moment in between there, which is a moment that transcends, that is bigger than any of these two extremes. But it's a fleeting moment. It's a moment that we hold on to. The fury is all the, the chaos in life and so on and so forth. And peace is an absolute. So this is a moment hmm. in between. And, yeah. I, and, and, and therefore, it's illusory. But as a poet, he's saying illusion is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, illusion is not necessarily um, something to just dismiss as a lie, but something that feeds us, that I think gives us some kind of hope. I love, too, the second stanza where he says, it was the light uh, before. But right before that, he says, they could not hear battalions of starlings, great praise, bearing the net higher, covering this world like the vines of an orchard or a mother drawing the trembling gauze over the trembling eyes of a child. And the dude, just like, the dude repeats trembling. <laughs> that's, that's like, Gets away with it. Hey. How dare you? <laughs> But yeah, what works is exactly that. It's, it's that double. And he's doing this layering thing. And it's it's a bold gesture to do it. Well, and I think he gives us the metaphor within the simile. That's right. He gives us the trembling gauze, which I don't take to be literal gauze. Right. But, like, but, but drawing a the child veil to over, sleep. right? Yes, the curtain yes. over. So he's, yes, he, that's yes. the metaphorical. And then the trembling eyes of a child fluttering so that it trembles and flutters, which, yeah. which is a little redundant. Uh, but, yes, yes. but again, it's slightly different. It's slightly different. And There's an ominousness to, to the trembling gauze yes. at first. Yes. Uh, yes. And yet at the same time, it has, where my family's from, 
uh, in Louisiana, you would almost it evokes a kind of call, like the if call. someone is that's born right. with a call, well, their see, the, the second sights, sight, the second sight. Yeah, that's a very Caribbean thing too. So, yeah, and There's then and then there. it's to sleep. Then we're thinking death, but then you know this second sleep. You know, so so he's playing with that idea, sure. but it's a tender moment of of a mother, which is the same as this orchard sort of this sense of the this covering of the world, the vines mm-hmm, of an orchard mm-hmm. covering the world. And an orchard too is a, it's different than a forest or a wood. Right. It it's is cultivated. Yeah. yeah. There's something he's, he is really, uh, wrestling in ways that I, I, I appreciate you saying are very Caribbean, but also he's wrestling with this kind of pastoral tradition yeah. that also thinks about the city. Uh, yeah. that's really interesting. But we should not leave this without realizing that his big metaphor is the weaving of a net. The birds and what the birds leave behind, that is the nest and a shelter. And he he keeps that all over, the gauze, all of these elements, the vines. He's just constantly working that same image in ways that we kind of, you know, we go, oh, (laughs) okay. So he he keeps that up. He keeps that up all the way through. How um, how do you feel he's able to do that? You know, he takes a thing and turns it, which is what poetry does turns it into another thing. Yeah, th- this is this is one of the great one of the great lessons I learned not from Walcott first but from Shakespeare's speeches. You know, I I discovered this thing when I was when I was reading Shakespeare and I had an old professor a man called Dr. Ingledew and he said he said that Shakespeare sort of does these conceits through whole plays. So so cloth, clothing is a big motif that runs through, you know, the merchant of Venice and so on. But then when you start looking at what Shakespeare does from the beginning of a speech to the end of a speech, you'll begin with a shoe and it ends with a sword. It's all metaphorical though and he keeps switching that metaphor so the shoe becomes a piece of leather, then it becomes a wallet, then it becomes, and he's just shifting it. And he's not, he's essentially mixing metaphors, but doing it with such slow, careful slippage between one to the other that by the time you're done, you get this this netting of a single kind of image. It's, it's part of the bombast of Shakespeare, which he can do because he's a playwright, right? He's writing for the stage. Walcott sort of masters that. And I think it's one of the criticisms that sometimes people had of Walcott, which is the flamboyance of his, his metaphor and his image and so on. But but I kind of like it. You know, <laughs> you kind of have to admire the skill of it. And, and he's very, very good at, at, that, at that thing of following that image and staying consistent with that image. A lot of work goes into that kind of thinking. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and the, I always admire his observation. And, and what I would almost say, he's such a good observer at times that he's comfortable taking himself out. You know, so he's just describing, but he doesn't say, I was walking and I saw this thing. It's like this thing is elemental. It's happening without me. And and there's something powerful about that. And in this poem particularly, he's interested in showing us what nature, what night, what the world does while these people are in their little boxes. It's such an interesting thing because one of the big discussions that 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 emerged after the Eliots and the correlative and all of that, the absence of I and the, the, what the new lyric is and so on, was where is the self? And sometimes we created a, a construct that eliminated the self in the most draconian and almost crude way. But voice is where a kind of self-authority is located. And you think of Walcott, who is constantly 
in every single one of his books because he thinks in these book moments where he declares himself voice, I'm voice. He's the kid that stands and looks over Castries in another life and goes and starts to weep and say, I must speak. I must speak for this island. He, he's constantly doing that. He's also, he, he will appear in Fortunate Traveler as this black guy just sitting there. And then you realize, okay, he's now established a kind of persona, but then he doesn't have to reiterate that persona. And there's a sense in which these, these poems, they sound so authentically and completely a singular vision. And that's the, that's the lyric power. And I think sometimes we make crude ideas about the absence of self as if the absence of self just means the absence of an I. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's a bit of it's a bit of arrogance to say, I said it. So, <laughs> you know, so it is. Like I right, said, right. I own this. And that that confidence I think is something I admire a great deal. And I and I think it definitely comes through here. I'm always fascinated about how the lyric can make you for a moment, for maybe a moment more, be that I, mm-hmm. you know, and transform into the other self. There's an idea that the lyric, I think, courts better than any other form, that you are yourself transported. Yeah. And, and for a moment, you know, we're with the birds in this poem. We're with every figure, and we don't need a guide so much. We need to experience it, to uh, have it enacted so well that we feel it. And, I, and that evocation, and in this poem, it is our connection, at least my connection, happens with the familiarity of the moment, that baited moment. First of all, that sense, that baitedness. I think as poets, we recognize that place where something is swelling in us. You can't explain it. Uh, it it's of no use to anybody, <laughs> but but it is beautiful. It's the idea of beauty. I really think this poem is about that. The, the poem is willfully saying things happen, buildings happen, people walk around living their lives and so on. And these birds are silently creating something. But this whole thing is an invention. I am inventing it. I'm inventing a moment of what I call beauty. And it's enough. That to me is is just one of the great sort of declarations of this poem. And it's what is so moving about it. And I think, I think as, a, as a artist, as a writer, I long for, to have those moments, any, as many as is possible. Now, in the September 23rd, 2019 issue of the magazine, The New Yorker published your poem, Before Winter, which we'll hear you read momentarily. First, though, is there anything you'd like us to know about this poem and how it came about? <laughs> You know, one of the things that I've been really thinking about, because Before Winter now appears in a collection called Nebraska, which just came out, um, I've been thinking and writing about the, uh, the relationship between the lyric, the, the poem, the sort of I in a poem, the positionality of a poem, and then my body inside the poem, and what does that mean? And, and one of the amusing moments when I sent the manuscript to um, the, the, the editors at the University of Nebraska Press they sent back their um, editorial blurb, the copy that was supposed to go on the book. And I read it and I wrote back and I said, you, you, you don't want anybody to buy this book. It's like people are, de- it's like death and doom and so on and so forth. I said, no. But then I thought, the thing about a poem, and you know this, Kevin, is we capture a moment and the moment is immensely true, but written and sort of locked into the frame of a poem 
it suggests a kind of permanence. Mm. And it almost seems to, so people will call me and say, are you okay? Are you dying? <laughs> and I'm going, no, like then I might have been, but right, right, it's right. okay now. <laughs> that moment is gone. Winter, and, winter is over. Winter maybe. is over. Like it, it goes on. And so that's the framework for this poem. But I, this poem is, is about me thinking about the body and mortality. Okay. Here, here is Kwame Dawes reading his poem, Before Winter. Before Winter. I imagine there is a place of deep rest. Not in the resting, but after, when the body has forgotten the weight of fatigue or of its many betrayals. How unfair that once I thought it clever to blame my body for the wounds in me, the ankle bulbous and aching, the heaviness in the thigh, and the fat, the encroachment of flesh. It is hard to believe that they are those who do not know that it is possible to let things go, to then see the expansion of flesh. It is so easy, and that knowing is a pathology. What is unknown to me is the clear day of rest. I carry a brain of crushed paper. Everything unfolds as if by magic. Every spot of understanding is a miracle. I cannot take any credit for the revelations. They come and go as easily as the wind. You must know that this is a preamble to an epiphany I will record. The late morning light of October, the damp, soiled backyard, the verdant green lawn, the bright elegance of leaves strewn over it all, turning nonchalantly in the wind, and the Nebraska sky blue as a kind of watery ease, a comfort. It is all I can say, the kind one knows even standing there, waiting for the dog to squat, that I will remember for years but will never have the language to speak of. One of those precious insignificances that we collect and hoard. The moment lasts ten breaths, and in that silence, I imagine that I can see spirits, I can know myself, and I will not fear the betrayals of body and love and earth and the machinations of emperors and pontificates. It will be winter soon. I know my body is collecting water in its nether regions, the weight of the hibernating mammal storing everything in drowsy, slow-moving preservation. I mean, I'm losing myself to the shelter we build to beat back sorrow and the weight of our fears. I have covered thousands of miles in a few days, and I feel my parts flaking off, a shedding of yellow pieces covering the turning earth, and I'm helpless to this soft disappearing. Some call it sleep. I will stretch out and breathe. That was Before Winter by Kwame Dawes. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour 
wherever you listen to podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's the speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. What a beautiful poem and and always uh, a delight to hear you read. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I love how it goes between the human and the animal, and by the end, uh, the body is an animal, you know, hibernating. Uh, and there's that great line that I think uh, gets me every time where you say, you must know that this is a preamble to an epiphany I will record. You know, it's talking about what's going to be discovered, but it also is aware that discovery is ongoing. Yeah. And somehow there's something about that that's a kind of hinge in the poem. Is, is that how you see it? It is completely the way I see it. And the weird thing is, it is, and I, I think I'll say this because this is the truth of it, is that even as I wrote that line, I didn't know what the epiphany was going to be. In other words, the poem is really a discovery for me. And I can't say that enough, I, you know. I, I I don't know. I think I think some poets sort of finish the whole idea in their heads. You who know, are these? Uh, I don't know uh, who these, they are, these sorcerers. <laughs> that's right. But for me, I'm 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 trying to find where it is, and and in that moment. But 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 I also know that two things are are, are true. That if it survives, there must be something that will come even if that thing is a disappointment. So it's an act of faith. But it's also an act of prodding that is saying, where are you going with this? What, what, you know, what is going to happen with this? Uh, you know, already I've sort of looked at my body, the changes of my body, and then what? What does it mean in that moment? That sense is a desperation that says it must, it must go somewhere. It must mean something. Well, because there's also... Uh a leap of faith, as you're putting it, in the beginning. I imagine there is a place of deep rest. Right. So the poem starts with a with a speculation and maybe a restlessness, a yearning. Someone who says that we think um, isn't there yet. Right. <laughs> I mean, and some of that is is saying I'm still alive, but some of it is also saying, Am I just existing? A- am I just going through it? And is there a, a rest? Somewhere, and and that's the des that's you know maybe desperation is not there, but that is the the low grade depression. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it is almost winter. Like it's I said, almost winter. And I'm going. Is this it? <laughs> right. It's slate gray. It's, and... it's slate gray, and so on. So that sense of it, mm-hmm. but in a but funny, uh, yeah, but it's going to sleep, right? And yes. sleep is not. You know, this is we were talking about that with Walker. Sleep is not always. A, a sort of stand-in for death in that sort of sure. you know tragic way, but sleep is is rest. Mm-hmm. It's is the contentment. And the poem, I don't know. It says not in the resting, but after. It even says that mm-hmm. when the body has forgotten the weight of fatigue or its many break 
betrayals. It's a poem of aging, as you as you indicate, and of before winter, uh, you know, is another way of saying autumn, you know, another yeah. way of saying the autumnal quality. But there's something resilient and funny a little bit uh, about the poem. I mean, it's not uh, ha-ha funny, but it is filled with ironies. Yeah, I see. I'm glad you say it because there are a number of sort of inside-ish jokes in the whole poem. One is, I'm walking a damn dog. (laughs) (laughs) Kwame Dawes is walking a dog. In the cold. (laughs) In the cold. This is is a Jamaican man walking a dog. That's a joke. Like, that's almost like, and it's there. And I know the people who are chuckling and going, wow, Kwame, look where you you come to. You (laughs) changed. You done changed, man. <laughs> Look what but, you come to. I, I have to say, in all seriousness, that's one of my favorite parts. Even standing there waiting for the dog to squat. It's not even the dog to do its business, but it's getting ready. It's getting ready. Because yeah. you see, when the dog does its business, the Jamaican man is going to have to pick up the yeah, business. Yeah, exactly. But but so 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 is that's one kind of joke. The other joke, it's not a it's not a joke, but it's also a moment of what it means for this particular body, that is my own body, thinking about weight, thinking about my ankle, thinking about these things to, 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 to walk through this, this alien territory. And there is a sense in which I am alien in this space. I'm an interloper. This is not my sort of native landscape and place. Um, and yet all the language of comfort, hibernation, the idea of change and seasonal change has become part of my hope. And that way in which I'm embracing that, even as my body sort of is resisting that, um, I think becomes a kind of statement about this immigrant body, this immigrant person in this in this landscape. Well, and, and I, I think there's a way in which uh, you put it so well that in the poem, it says the machinations of emperors and pontificates. Like yeah. these, these figures that are impacting the body and the self uh, who don't know from the daily embodied struggle of of just waking and and walking and working, you know. I mean, and there's something yeah. in that that I think is really powerful, and it's political in its dismissal. Yeah, and and it's uh, it's it's something I'm acutely aware of, the ways in which the world is run by these people, these leaders, um, and their impact is brutal. Uh, in in shifting and changing the way that we see things. And yet one is still having to live through that. And yeah, it is a dismissal of it, but as you say, it is a a recognition of it. I I think this form, and you can see that what I'm doing with these poems and this particular poem is, is the long line. The syntax is where the formal technique is at work. How do I take these long breaths with all of these parenthetical sort of asides and then yet keep myself on the tightrope. That, that's the challenge, the poetic challenge. And in a sense, it's been the form that has spoken to um, the copiousness of thought and yet trying to contain it in the line. That, that is where I am sort of thinking now, rather than the sort of trimmed line that almost has a kind of uh, a determinism that says, I've got it and I can trim it to that. This is the sense that there's so much to consider, and yet I have to maintain that I'm still on this same track. That, that to me, is the technical challenge of, of, of this particular poem, and I think it's in the syntax. Well, I think that's really well said. I mean, the long line uh, here for you, it, it feels thoughtful, it's, it feels, uh, but it also feels like physical. 
It feels like it's working through. Uh, and you're showing us the thoughts of this eye, but also, as you said, there's a sense of discovery. Uh, we don't start off the poem with someone who's like, I, I totally know where we're going. It's not a rambunctious eye, but it is a reckoning and, and reflective. And then by the end, also, I think, redemptive. It's redemptive, uh, yeah. And and because of the way that people have responded to it, and that's why I'm really grateful to The New Yorker for publishing the poem, the response has been very interesting. Most of what is said is, oh, it's so good not to be alone. It's, you know what I yeah. mean? You know, I, I woke up and then I read this and, and I realized I'm not, I'm not alone. And, and I, I appreciate that sense that, that I'm, I'm joining with. There's a chorus. The, there's a chorus, yeah. And, and, and I think that's an element of the poem that it's worth talking about that it's the recognition of self that is its hope, right? It's, it's not necessarily that the poem is hopeful, but that it's recognized and that the poet who is able to, to be true to that and, and, and somebody else can use their own imaginative powers in their reading to find that place and to find some affinity in that place. I think that's one of the beautiful joys of, of making poems and, and the business of poetry. Well, it ends, I will stretch out and breathe. And in a way, and I think the long lines accomplish this, is there's all this breath, you know, but you realize by the end, those person's almost holding their breath the whole time. That's right. And there's something about it. I will stretch out. I'm going to take all that space up. Yeah. And that's okay. And, and, and I guess that breathing thing and that sense of time, there's that line that I, you know, I, I come back and I think, well, that's not bad, but it takes 10 breaths. That, that the use of breath as a kind of marker of time. Um, and, and for me, it was going back to the most basic markers of time. It's the persistence of living. And well, it it's temporary. not a syllable. It's, it's, a, it's an organic. It's an organic thing. It's part, it's part of that. So, so it's bodily. And, it, it, and I'll, be, I'll be honest, I started off sort of joking about the poems, but it's, I feel more vulnerable about a poem like this than than many of many other poems that I've written. Um, not in a terrible way, but it does feel a little naked. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so powerful. Um, I am helpless to the soft disappearing that some call sleep. I mean, that that's not simple, and you've earned it so well uh, by the end. I want to ask um, in a broader way about Nebraska, the book you've written mm-hmm. that is set there. How, how would you describe it? How do you think of it? Um, it's it's poems I've written in that space, and you know I write I write a lot, and so one of the things of putting them together, I didn't I didn't realize how much I'd written about the space and being in this space, and um, when I started to put the collection together, they, it became one sort of statement, and it, I started to move. It goes through seasons, um, and the the, the the motif that runs through it is light, and, and in fact, one of the great blessings of Nebraska, for me anyway, is light. The persistence of light, even in the deepest winter, there's light. And I feed on light. I think, sure. I think it's one of the things that, that has sustained me in, in that space. And that motif runs through it. Um, but there's also a sense in which I'm writing about what it means to be in an alien space, learning landscape, learning the birds, the trees, learning, learning the sky. What does it mean? When is weather coming? When is weather not coming? 
um, not being able to do cardinal points like Nebraskans do. Like, you know, it's like left and right. That's the best I can do. But learning all of that and trying to, to be true to that, but also I'm not just learning about me and Nebraska, but I'm learning about me at a certain stage in life. My children are grown. They're moving out. My wife and I are reaching a stage where we're sort of working through who we are in in this time. And Nebraska has found us in that space. So it's a, it's a, it is true to be a Nebraska collection, and it's about Nebraska in that sense. But it's also about being, again, another stage of an immigrant's existence and, and an American's existence um, in that new space. Uh, one of the questions that came up for me then, is this a book of exile? I think it's a book of exile, but I, I think exile has evolved these days because I think when my father used exile, he, you know, it cost a lot of money and took weeks to take a ship from England. To, you know, you kind of were in prison where you were. And also exile is a statement not so much about where you are, but about where you left. Right. And in fairness, I don't feel exiled from the Caribbean. Right. Caribbean is still my home. Jamaica sure. is still home. Sure. Ghana is still home. But, but the elements of, of being away, the elements of redefining home, all of those things are, the, I think, the contemporary idea of exile for many, many. I mean, from other people, they are leaving, they are fleeing, and that exile is a different kind of exile. But I think we, we recognize a similar sense of absence um, that I think is one that, that most people who have left one place and are in another place share. And I think these poems sort of speak to that too, yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book, and thank you so much for coming and talking about it with us. Thanks. Before Winter by Kwame Dawes, as well as Derek Walcott's The Season of Phantasmal Peace, can be found on NewYorker.com. Kwame Dawes's latest poetry collection is Nebraska. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 